Uh, recently, I was at a conference in Chicago, um, and while I was there, I heard a guy named Jeff Vanderstelt. He's a pastor of an Acts 29 church in Tacoma, Washington, and uh, he told this story about his young son, which I found uh, captivating. He said, before bedtime, the two of them were kneeling down uh, to pray, just as they do every night. Uh, but on this particular occasion, the son, for one reason or another, I can't remember exactly what it was, said, hey, Dad, I, do, I don't want to pray tonight. And uh, what Vanderstel did uh, still amazes me. He, how he responded uh, really, really kind of stuck with me. This is what he didn't do. He didn't command his son to pray. He didn't give him a guilt trip about not wanting to pray. He didn't launch into some sort of uh, defensive prayer, which are all strategies I've tried, by the way. <laughs> this is the right, uh, the right thing to do. Here's what he said. He said, son, I'm teaching you to pray because one day when you're a dad, you're going to have to teach your son how to pray. And then what his son said, you know, kind of waited a minute. And then the son said, hey, dad, let's get to praying. It must be really important. What I need to do is get as much practice as I possibly can. Okay, and see what he what he was doing is he was restoring to his son a sense of purpose amid that sort of purposeless routine that the son was facing. He he actually maintains a relationship with the son by giving him a job to do, uh, which is brilliant, sheer brilliance. Um, here's the deal: I think even as adults, you can grow tired of uh, doing a task. You can grow tired of following Jesus for a whole number of reasons. And it may be because you're lost in that sort of day-to-day routine. So much repetition, you ask yourself, why am I even doing this? Why do I continue coming to these services? Why do I continue these prayers? Why am I reading this Bible? Or uh, maybe it's because um, for other reasons, maybe circumstances haven't turned out the way that you planned. Maybe um, you didn't get that satisfying job that you wanted, or maybe you thought you'd be married by now. Um, Or for another reason, maybe you have made so many mistakes, so many mistakes, that you think you can't possibly get anything right this time. You can't possibly make it to Jesus. Jesus must want to have nothing to do with you. And I think when we're faced with these sort of challenges to our faith and these challenges to our life, we often, here's the deal, we often return to doing what comes most comfortably to us. We return to doing what's most natural. We return to doing what is um, the most, what, we, what is the easiest, essentially, what we feel most comfortable with. And in John 21, the passage that Sarah just read, the disciples, they continue to face all sorts of uncertainty. They're continuing to face all sorts of fears, all sorts of discouragement, all sorts of guilt, even after the resurrection even after the resurrection. And they respond by defaulting to what comes to, to most naturally to them. They go home and they return to fishing, back to their old professions, back to what they were doing before they followed Jesus. But here's the deal. Jesus doesn't leave them alone. Jesus appears to them again once more. And this time, it's not only to remind them of who he is and what he has done, It's also to invite them to participate with him in the job that he's doing. He calls his followers, essentially, to share in his mission. And because, and listen, because Jesus calls you, the risen Jesus calls you. He's calling you to love others. He's calling you to shepherd others. And we're going to work out what some of that means 
follow him. Follow him today. What I want to look at today are three things. First of all, basically three things that stand in our way of following this call. The first thing is our lack of purpose, feeling of purposelessness. The second thing is feelings of inadequacy, that we can't live up to the job that he's calling us to do. And the third thing is the cost, just how difficult it may be to follow him. However, Jesus renews our sense of purpose. He makes your inadequacy irrelevant. And he promises future glory in the face of suffering. Okay, so let's look at those three things. First of all, follow Jesus despite purposelessness or apparent purposelessness. Take a look back at the passage. Look at verses 1 through 3. The disciples appear purposeless. Okay, that's part of the point. They have... um, left Jerusalem. They're back in Galilee. Okay. Just as I said earlier, they're back to fishing. There's seven of them. Not all of them are together. You can see the names listed before you. Um, Peter still functions as the kind of de facto leader. And he says, I'm going fishing. Everybody else says, sure, we'll come along with you. And keep in mind, look, these guys have had some unsettling events happen to them. They have witnessed the death of Jesus which is obviously unsettling, and then the somewhat equally unsettling resurrection appearances of Jesus. They're just not sure what to do with those things. They don't know what it means to follow him beyond death and beyond his resurrection, okay? They have um, sort of lost their way. They've forgotten the original call. Remember, the original call was, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And now in this sort of in-between time, they're not sure what that looks like. They're not sure what to do. They are neither um, the eager group of followers at the beginning of John who just cast their nets aside and follow him. And at the same time, they're not spirit-empowered apostles that you'll see soon in the book of Acts who are going running around from place to place telling everybody about Jesus. He's risen. He's risen. He's risen. Unsure of what to do, they go home and go fishing. And I think John intentionally highlights the futility of this task. So you'll see in the text, they fish all night. They can't catch anything. It appears that they're doing things in their own strength. They don't catch any fish. But notice what happens. Look at verses 4 through 14. Jesus appears to them. He approaches them, and he serves them. And this is one of really kind of the most curious passages to me. It's beautiful, and it's also curious. This whole situation where Jesus um, cooks them breakfast As he appears and approaches to them, he is going to restore to them a sense of expectancy, restore to them a sense of purpose. Let's take a look at the story. I love the, uh, the historical details that are present. I love the sort of kind of tidbits that John throws in. They've been out all night, but they haven't caught anything. And dawn breaks, and they notice a man on shore. They probably can't tell who he is because he's so far away, and the light is just starting to dawn. They're fishing. Now, I haven't done any study of ancient Near Eastern fishing, which maybe I should have before as preparing for this text, but I have been fishing. (laughs) And and to me, (laughs) and I remember getting up at the early dawn with my father to go fishing as I was younger, and to me, this reads like a story of people going to fish. So I don't know if you have much experience or not, but take a look at what happens and kind of put yourself in their place there. Um, The guy on the shore asks the annoying and obvious question. (laughs) I apologize for just calling Jesus annoying. He says, and if you've ever been fishing, you've heard this question. Hey, guys, have you caught anything? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, we've been out here all night. We haven't caught anything. 
And then he responds with the equally annoying for anyone who's ever been fishing. Hey, why don't you try the other side of the boat? <laughs> and that's what observers do. Casual observers watching people fish ask them, hey, did you catch anything yet? Hey, try over there. I think that's where the fish will be. And it's like only when they catch so many fish do they recognize Jesus. What's, what's miraculous is how the, the, the miraculous and the supernatural sort of breaks into the utterly normal night. And I kind of, I imagine this as if I'm like watching a movie, you know, suddenly they do it. Okay, sure. We'll try it. They throw, they throw it over. They throw their nets over and suddenly the nets are full. And I just see like every head, you know, Jesus, (laughs) it's Jesus. And Peter is so excited to get out there. He's so startled. He kind of almost falls into the water. He trips up. He's gathering his clothes and everything. And they just throw it. It literally says he throws himself into the water trying to get there recognizing that it's him. The other disciples, though, are good, like good fishermen. They don't want to lose the fish. They stick in the boat. <laughs> we're going to ride the boat to shore. We'll be fine. Peter, you, you go ahead. Here's what Jesus does. It's amazing. Here's what's really amazing about the miracle to me is that he not only appears to them, but he serves them. And this keep, keep, if you're here last week, keep that, that story of Thomas in mind. There's lots of similarities here, okay? He appears to the disciples and he serves them. See, this is the Lord who, remember, he entered into Thomas's doubt to confront his doubt after the resurrection. And here, what the Lord does, in the same way, he's the, the one who served his disciples in his life, the one who served his disciples on the cross, serves them, cooks them breakfast, and eats it with them. You see, I guess it's helpful to think of the ways what he could have done. He could have um, revealed himself in some kind of powerful glory. He could have crushed them for their ignorance or lack of understanding. But instead, he just wants to sit down and have a meal with them. He wants to be with them. He wants to be present with them and reassure, reassure them with his presence. I'm here as I always was, but not as I always was. Okay, something's changed. Things have changed. The resurrection has happened. But I'm here with you guys is what he's telling them. You see, the risen Jesus who appeared to those disciples, who served them, who loved them, he's calling you today. He's calling you to follow him. And if you feel like you're going through life without purpose or you feel like you've, you've lost some sense of ultimate purpose, look no farther than Jesus. See, what Jesus does is he's constantly pulling people out of their limited, sort of self-absorbed little worlds, and he's opening them up to the larger story of what God's doing in the world. Jesus says, God himself is gathering worshipers unto himself, and God has sent Jesus as his son to gather these worshipers in. And Jesus, yes, he has kingly authority to crush Satan, On the cross, he has kingly authority to defeat sin. On the cross, he has kingly authority to defeat death in the resurrection. And here he is, welcoming sinners to himself. Here he is, restoring broken lives. Here he is. The resurrection is empowering mission. Jesus is present with his followers. The kingdom has come. Uh, right here in this passage. And so we need to be prepared um, to listen to his voice, to be surprised by the fact that he is taking us with him on this job that he said to do. See, where this story falls is right in between John 20, where Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I'm going to send you. As the Father sent me, I'm going to send you. 
And then a little later when he talks to Peter, you'll see him say, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. There's a call, there's a preparation to the mission, a call to love others as Jesus did. That means we, gotta, we have to be looking outward instead of inward. We have to go instead of drawing people to ourselves. We have to see the larger purpose of what God's doing as this missionary God in the world. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of this, okay? Um, what, uh, an, an illustration of loving by going versus doing what comes easiest. When I was teaching at Millbrook High School, we had a number of different principals who would kind of roll in and out. And one was legendary, and that was not the one that we had. <laughs> the one that we had, everyone was kind of frustrated by. But I guess, isn't that a teacher's job to kind of be frustrated by the principal? It's sort of par for the course. I know there are teachers out there. Isn't that what teachers do, complain about the principal? No, I never did either. Okay. Uh, let me tell you the story of two principals. The principal that we had... Um, well, I'll start with one who was legendary. The legendary principal, everyone told stories about, he was there before I got there, but he would walk around the school every morning. He would walk into every teacher's classroom. He would greet every teacher by name. Good morning, how are you doing? Do you need anything today? And then he would, um, he knew all the students and he knew the students by name. So he'd, he, that's where he was. He was out in the halls, reaching people, loving people, prepared for anything that was going to happen during the day. He was going and he loved by going. Um, he looked at, at people with compassion. The second principal hid in her office. Okay? So she, you could never find her out in the halls. You could never find her out in the classrooms. And she would only solve problems as they arose, as they came to her. Okay? She was someone who was doing what? What comes easiest, not loving by going, which is what Jesus is calling us to do. If I can give you another example, um, this, this slips in very easily. When I was, uh, I used to work at a thrift store. And one of the reasons I started working at New Life Thrift was so that I could meet customers and have some opportunity to talk to them about faith or about their life or about how they're hurting or about Jesus. And so that used to be my favorite thing to do was just kind of hang out in the book room and I would talk to people and find people and meet them and everything like that. But what happened is I, I started to realize that the thrift store, thrift stores kind of attract crazy people. <laughs> I mean, I mean, clinical, <laughs> not just quirky. <laughs> and what would happen is I would uh, suddenly start to feel bothered, right? And suddenly start to feel like, oh, this is taking more time than I thought it was. And what I did find myself doing was finding more excuses for being in the office doing administrative tasks and administrative duties. Okay. I'm too busy. I'm in too much of a hurry. Um, I'm too, I, I wanted to protect myself. I was a little too self-righteous. Okay. And all those things stand in the way of compassion, genuine compassion of reaching out to the people who are, um, around you and who you face. See, I did what came easiest rather than what I had originally been called to do. So what I, what I want you to do today is start asking yourself some questions. You can already start asking you, yourself, where are hurting people around you? Where are people hurting around you? That's an easy question. Hurting people are not hard to find. You will find them wherever you go, next to you in work, somebody struggling with a marriage, um, where you live, a single mom maybe, um, everywhere that you go, in your neighborhood, in your home meeting, in your work, you will find hurting people and ask yourself the question, Am I seeing them with compassion? Am I loving them the way Jesus did? Am I going to them? Or am I doing what brings me the most comfort? 
Am I doing what's easiest? Am I doing what comes the most naturally to me? And start to ask yourself the question, how can God use me here in this job, in this neighborhood, in this relationship to bring him glory and to advance his kingdom? I'm going to make a really brief aside. Um, we can apply the same thing to liberty in the time of transition. A time of transition might be a time where you're tempted to um, focus inward, right? We get real analytical about how things are going and what's happening. But this is not a time to turn inward away from your mission. It's a time to join together and continue looking outward to remember the mission. You're still called to the same mission. You're still called to follow the same Jesus. You're still called to, follow, to, to reach the same lost people. We're here together to do those things. Okay, second point. Sometimes what I just said leads people to feeling totally inadequate. I'm not up to the job. I can't do it. But Jesus is calling you to follow him despite your feelings of inadequacy. Look at verses 15 through 19. Here John focuses in on Peter, one disciple who must be haunted by a sense of grief, guilt, failure. Remember that um, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter um, betrayed Jesus three times, denying him three times. And here Jesus sort of intentionally calls to mind those three betrayals by asking him this question over and over. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? But what I want you to see is that Jesus humbles Peter rather than humiliating him, okay? He draws him closer to him instead of pushing him away. Yes, it's a confrontation. Yes, it's a rebuke. You see that Peter says I was that he was grieved by these questions in verse 17. But notice the, the response that Peter gives to Jesus that proves that his heart has changed, that he's finally humble. He doesn't claim that he's better than everybody else. He's already done that before. He doesn't say, um, he doesn't list all the great things he's now going to do for Jesus. He doesn't even say how much he's learned. He just says, Jesus, each time Jesus asks him, do you love me? He says, you're the one that knows. You know, I don't know. You know, Lord, I love you. You know, Lord, I love you. And then he says, he adds, you're the one that knows everything. See, what Peter's saying is I've spent my whole life trying to interpret Jesus. Jesus, it's time for you to interpret me. I'm totally going to submit myself to you, whatever that means, whatever that costs, whatever that might involve. You see, following the risen Jesus involves just that type of heart change, just that type of shift. Um, I was at, and that, that's it's a huge part of the gospel message. I was at a home meeting this week, and um, it was Jay Barbieri who was reminding the group that we so often respond to God as orphans rather than as sons. We, we so often sort of beat ourselves up and think, look, Lord, I've fallen too far. I've sinned um, too much. I, I just, I, I'm going to have to do better again next time. I know you're displeased with me. But God has sent his son into the world so that you can be adopted as sons, not as orphans. He frees you from fear. He frees you from guilt. Jesus took condemnation upon himself to free you from all the sin and shame. And he approaches you after the resurrection. And in your inadequacy, he gives you his perfect adequacy. See, Jesus is the only one that's adequate. Um, and that's going to have 
just this can have a tremendous bearing on your purpose and on the church's mission. He's accepted you despite your inadequacy. He's calling you despite your inadequacy. Uh, my favorite illustration of this is actually John the Baptist. So you remember when John, Jesus comes to John the Baptist and Jesus says, I want you to baptize me. John's like, no way. I want to be baptized by you. I can't do it, Lord. What's he saying? I'm not worthy. I'm inadequate. I can't do it. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, this is a paraphrase. (laughs) Jesus says, I know you're not worthy. I know you're not adequate. I never asked you to be adequate. I asked you to do it, to fulfill all righteousness. If you are adequate, if you are worthy, you would be the Lord of the universe. I'm the Lord of the universe. I have come to you. I have come to repair you, to meet you where you are. And you see, it's only false humility. It's false humility that we use to justify our sense of purposelessness and our own inadequacies. So Jesus says, Dwayne, I want you to become interim pastor at Liberty Church. (laughs) What's my first response? Lord, I'm not adequate, (laughs) right? Lord, I am not adequate to the job. And he says, yeah, I know, I know. I didn't call you to be adequate. Preach the gospel, who's adequate to that task? Shepherd my people, who's adequate to that task? Advance my kingdom, who's adequate to that task? You know what Jesus says? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. If you are feeling inadequate in whatever it is that Jesus is calling calling you to do, Remember, his grace is sufficient for you. And maybe you need a reminder of that. Maybe you need a reminder of um, his adequacy, his perfection, especially if you're feeling overwhelmed. If you know people who are struggling in their marriage and you don't know what to do, his grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for you. If you're um, living in brewery town, and you're, you're, you're trying to remember why I moved here in the first place. <laughs> How can I reach these neighbors, right? Remember, he didn't call you to be adequate. He calls you to go. His grace is sufficient to, for you. Remember ca- the calling that he gave to you. Follow me. And ask the Spirit to start helping you. Ask the Spirit to start helping you to help others who are around you. Okay, let's look at the third thing. Jesus calls us to follow him despite the cost. Here's what he tells Peter. He says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. And what I want to look at here is what shepherding involves and what shepherding leads to. So two things, what shepherding involves and what shepherding leads to. First of all, you see the image of shepherding throughout the entire Old Testament. God himself is called a shepherd who cares for his people. He tends for his people. He provides for his people. He protects his people. And um, all throughout the Old Testament, key leaders you'll find called shepherds of God's people. So Moses is called a shepherd. David is called a shepherd. These guys are called to lead his people, to guide them, to give them what they need, to protect them. However, all of God's leaders of Israel fall short. And a great passage to go home and read is Ezekiel 34. And, and you'll see that the prophet laments because all the shepherds of Israel have been feeding themselves rather than the sheep. They haven't been healing those who are broken. They haven't been binding up the injured. They haven't been seeking the lost. And then what the Lord says is is amazing. He says, I'll come myself and I will be the shepherd for you. 
I will come myself and I will shepherd you. And then the writers of the New Testament are making this totally clear. Jesus is the good shepherd. John himself in chapter 10 says, has Jesus say, I am the good shepherd who has come. And he is a good shepherd who knows his sheep. He's a good shepherd who feeds his sheep. He's a good shepherd who protects them and who ultimately lays down his life for them. See, that's the question. What does shepherding involve? It involves caring for people. It involves um, going to where they are and knowing them, building relationships with them. It involves speaking the gospel to them, giving them the message from Christ that he needs. It involves protecting them when you see that they're hurting themselves or they're hurting others. It involves providing for them. But what it leads to is death. Okay, so the only person who could ever get shepherding right in the history of the world was Jesus, and it led to his death, which should be a humbling call. When he tells Peter, follow me, where does he tell Peter that he's going? Look at verse 17 and verse 18. Uh, let's 18. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show the kind of death that he, by which he was to glorify God. Now there's so much going on here. There's tons going on here in this passage, um, that we won't have time to get to. Um, but I want to make a couple of points. Okay. Jesus is teaching others what it means to follow him. And he's also teaching us what we should look for in leaders of the church. See, both Paul and both Peter later in their epistles say, if you want to see a leader, leaders are ones who should shepherd well. Leaders are ones who should do these tasks of providing for the people. They're ones who should be feeding the people. They're ones who should be leading by example in faith and repentance and protecting the people. And so this is sort of as an aside, as you're thinking about, um, you know, nominating elders, as we go through the season of nominations, look around you and think, who is it that's already doing some of these things? Who is it that God is raising up who may be caring for his sheep, who's loving them, who's leading by example? And if you're, um, if you're a home meeting leader, I actually invite you also to sort of see yourself as a shepherd. I've had a couple of conversations with home meeting leaders recently where um, I want, want, you to, want to help you see yourself not only as a facilitator of a discussion, not only as somebody who's there to sort of lead, uh, lead and guide a discussion, but as someone who is present and able to care for the needs of the group to find out where are, per- where are people hurting and how can I help them? Where are people struggling and how can I reach into their lives? How can I follow up with them? And um, in some ways, you, you sort of function as the first line of pastoral defense for the church. But it's clear from the passage that it's not only leaders, it's not only home meeting leaders, it's not only elders, it's not only the deacons, but Jesus is calling each of us to shepherd one another. And he clearly indicates the cost. He clearly indicates the cost when he tells Peter what will, what will happen to him. You see, following Jesus costs, loving others costs. It will cost Peter his life. The indication here is probably that he himself will be a martyr, and church history has told us that he did end up dying a martyr's death. 
And what I've been really challenged with, if I can end kind of on this personal note recently, is just how rarely I, I'll use myself, I, as an American, um, rarely count the cost of following Jesus. I sort of think as a middle-class, well-educated, white American, I spend very little time thinking about what this whole deal will cost, what Jesus is actually demanding here. You see, I, I, I tend to um, think I can love others and indulge myself at the same time. Okay? Think of how often we say, I need to get something out of this meeting. I need to get something out of this lesson. But think of how different it would be if you said, how can I take what I'm learning right now and pass it on to someone else? Even right now, even in the sermon, right? Most of us go to the sermon and we sort of think, what can I get out of it to meet my needs? But think of how differently you would listen to the sermon if you think, how can I take what Jesus is saying through this inadequate pastor and pass it on to somebody else? What's the one thing I could take today and give to somebody else? And I think we oftentimes think that we can protect the sheep without the risk of facing the wolves. Um, and, and that's just, it's just not the case. Here's what Jesus promises to Peter in the face of this. He says, when you follow me, you're following me into a death and into resurrection. You see, that means nothing is off limits for Jesus. Okay. There's nothing that he can't demand of you which is humbling. But there's nothing that he will withhold from you. The power of the resurrection is present even after his death. Peter would glorify God even in following him to his death. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. Um, He says, actually, we don't know more resurrections than we do in our Christian life experience day by day. Because of the deaths, we refuse to die day to day. See, I'm not, I'm not only talking about um, one single death, but the process of daily setting your needs and your desires aside for the needs of others. That's what he's calling you to do in shepherding. He gives you purpose and calls you to go. He's here with you despite whatever inadequacies you may face. And he's calling you. Um, to a life of dying with him and rising to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we, um, we are humbled by all that you have done. And we confess that we are um, not worthy to the task. And so we look to your gospel of grace to that Jesus who is present with his disciples, to one who would suffer on our behalf and who is promising a future glory that's better than anything that we could cling to on this earth, Uh, would you help us just to take steps of true humility in loving others um, by setting aside our own needs and following you? And I just pray that even as we come to communion, Lord, you would help us to see that you are here with us, guiding us and leading us You are a good shepherd who has laid down his life for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.